0: Hello fellow innovators, this is Patrick Emmons.
1: And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast.
0: Today, we welcome a very good friend, Roman Dumiak. Roman spent over 40 years at Allstate and he has quite an experience in how to develop a culture of innovation. At a very large insurance company.
1: So let's get started.
0: So uh, welcome again to the podcast. Uh, glad to have you here. Uh, we're really happy to have a very good friend uh, of ours join us, uh, Roman Dumiak. Uh, he's he's a technology leader here in Chicago, somebody I've known for quite a few years. Uh, so Roman, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your background.
2: Hi, my name is Roman Dumiak, and I am uh, currently working for a small private equity firm and I provide them with some technical advice uh, on different companies they're considering working uh, with or investing in. Uh, Prior to that, I had a 40-plus-year career with Allstate Insurance, and I've done a number of things for Allstate Insurance, including uh, software development. I did a lot of work on infrastructure many years in both database and network. I was an architect uh, where I handled the governance and frameworks team. And then ended that uh, for six years, I was director of technology innovation at Allstate. And we had a group of about 42 people uh, at the end that were involved in the technical side
0: of innovation for Allstate. Very cool. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the story of that last five years as you started to build those type of teams and how you built out the innovation lab and some of the focus on bringing newer technology to, to Allstate and getting them prepared for the innovations that are going to be coming up. I think is a really great story how it starts and what it became. So um,
2: although it's a large company, Allstate is really not the number one insurance carrier in the U.S. So I think it's always been a company which has a culture that's looking to do better. You know, we're always in second place trying to work up into first place. Uh, as part of that... Uh, I had an opportunity to take on a role of director of technology innovation. It was a partnership role with our marketing group. Marketing was responsible for kind of the business strategy end of it, and we were responsible for the technology aspects of innovative ideas. And we were accountable for everything from handling the ideation phase, you know, collecting, uh, sorting, prioritizing ideas, Uh, we had a portal that did that. We did work around partnerships uh, with both uh, groups within the company as well as other B2B partners that we had. We took it uh, as far as doing proof of concepts and market tests. So when somebody had a good idea, we could actually iterate through that idea and get metrics on whether or not it had lift enough to really put through the production uh, software development factory, if you will. And then lastly, uh, what Patrick knows me for best is we were charged with helping a, uh, initially it started as an IT transformation, but I think it's now rolling into a company-wide transformation. Uh, Through that transformation, we were looking at things like uh, new ways of doing software development, new processes and technologies and tools that we started to bring in, as well as different workspaces
0: for people to work in. Yeah, I think one of the things that was very visible when we would visit over at Allstate was the culture was not what you would expect from a very large insurance organization. I thought some of the things that you had a lot of success with was the culture and some of the formation of the teams I think what you did there was very differentiating. You know, How did you figure out how to separate those two disciplines of scrum versus extreme programming? Well, what we did was
2: we actually have three methodologies in play today at Allstate. Uh, one is the obvious waterfall methodology that's been there forever. Um, that is still going to stay, especially for project based work that has to do with compliance activities so insurance rate changes things like that you want to have good documentation good phases and you're really not going to iterate through a rate change you know you got to uh, go through a state filing and a number of processes so it works very well to do that in waterfall other activities especially things that we build now or buy we're looking at agile for the most part agile scrum tends to be used for those activities around products that we've bought. So whether it's SAP for the ERP system and uh, loading in a new release of that or new enhancements for that, that will likely be Scrum. The other activities that we do where we build software from scratch, we use a technique called extreme programming, Agile XP for short. XP has a number of tenants that make it a very good way to iterate and improve software Quality as well as quickly get metrics back on your products and how the customers are reacting to those. That's awesome.
0: One of the things from a recruiting standpoint that I thought was very interesting in the conversations we've had is your focus on empathy, where I'd say most people I know in the IT tech space spend 0% of their time in the interview process on anything as squishy as empathy. So why do you think empathy is such an important part of a successful team at, at Allstate?
2: So when we were developing custom software on these XP teams I mentioned before, we really brought in candidates and interviewed them really on three aspects. One was obviously the technology part. Do they understand Java? Do they understand the tech stack? You know, How far can they take things? The second thing we evaluated them on was communication skills, because as part of XP, you're going to be doing paired programming, which really means two developers sitting each with their own keyboards, but one computer with two different monitors showing the same stuff. One developer drives, the other one actively partners. So you need somebody who can communicate and won't just sit there and watch. And then the third thing we evaluated people on is empathy. Can you really put yourself in the other person's shoes as you're doing that paired programming? And we would actually run them through what we called a pairing interview. And as part of that pairing interview, they went through with an interviewer, a code set. And we would walk through the code set and evaluate not only their ability to understand technically what they were looking at, but how would they communicate about it? What did they communicate? And did they show empathy? Uh, As an example, we don't do this anymore, but I'll share with you a little test of empathy might be that the interviewer makes three typos as part of the exercise. And so what is the reaction of the interviewee to those typos? Do they say nothing? Do they say something outrageous, like, you know, can't you type? (laughs) Or do they try to put themselves in the other person's shoes and try to figure out, you know? Why are they mistyping a variable name over and over again? And should we maybe change the variable name to match what they're typing in? Things like that.
1: Did your interview process evolve as your culture evolved? Is that something that you brought to light?
2: It definitely did. Over time, we've changed the technical code set. We've changed the things that we're looking for in the way we rate people's communications and things that we're doing for measuring their empathy, if you will.
1: I think it's incredible that you've stayed in one company for 40 years and it is so innovative. Is that what motivated you to, to get up in the morning and, and keep innovating and, and stay with? Well, it's what certainly
2: motivated me to keep coming to Allstate. I, I think it's been a great place to work. And again, I think part of it is the culture of always trying to optimize or do better at what we do. There is no one that will not listen to you if you have a suggestion on how to improve a process, a better way of doing things. Uh, We, in some cases, unfortunately, we're a large company, so sometimes we buy lots of different software that tends to do the same things. So as an architect, that was part of my job was to rationalize software. And we would go ahead and really try to understand what the value behind uh, doing different things were so that you know, we could make ourselves better. And I I think that's the thing that carried me through the 40 plus years. I was privileged at the end to work on a topic called innovation, but I think all along the way, you know, people realized that if you wanted to work in a different group that was expanding or changing the way they were doing things, uh, they were always open to new people coming in. As long as you worked hard, that was kind of the important
0: thing. I think that's really great. Because I think that's a lot of questions nowadays with people who are trying to do more innovation is how come we don't already have it? And from your perspective, Allstate's always had that culture of like, can we do it? So when you guys started building out the lab, I know it started out, you hijacked a conference room, right? You and a couple so, pirates. So as I said, you know, our transformation did not
2: start out with somebody you know, putting a big label out there saying, we are going to transform. It started out just as the innovation team was starting to move beyond just being able to curate innovative ideas to actually implementing some of them from a proof of concept or market test perspective. Uh, We got a lot of notoriety, if you will, on our ability to push code out to uh, various locations in production environments. That was something that external vendors had said they could do. But if you think about it, when they come from the outside, they don't really know what your methodologies are, what your tools are, what your, uh, in our case, what our frameworks were for delivering code. And we did, and we knew what the data sources were, and we had access to those. So we were able to put out these really rich proof of concepts pretty quickly, and that got some notoriety, as I mentioned. And so the thought came up is like, okay, what is, and I, I use this word, Loosely, what is Roman's team or what is the innovation team really doing differently? And one of the things we were doing was iterating, measuring, and then learning from what we had iterated on. We didn't subject the uh, sponsors or clients that wanted the solution to rigorous requirements gathering. We would really just kind of get a sense of what they wanted, put a prototype or something in front of them, and then iterate on that and then eventually release it to an environment where customers or agents could actually use it. So that was done in a small innovation lab, okay? We just had a room that we used for that. Eventually, we started realizing that people were watching the way we were developing code, and they wanted us to do it larger scale. So we started with a conference room that... Most of the people at Allstate hated this conference room because it had a pillar right in the middle of it. But the pillar actually worked out nicely because it allowed us to divide up the room into a section for software engineers, a section for product managers and UX designers, and a section for food, for snacks. And uh, the other thing about that small lab was it was right on a major corridor with glass walls. So everybody was able to walk by And watch this team of, there were four teams within there uh, doing software development. They'd get up, they'd go get a snack, they'd uh, talk to each other. You know, they were working as a collaborative team. And they became, you know, oblivious to the fact that they were behind glass pretty quickly. Uh, But all the other people would walk by and see what was going on there and see the level of excitement and collaboration, food, (laughs) you know, which was an unheard of item in a major corporate setting. And so what happened was we went from I believe initially it was 3 or 4 small teams and then we went to commandeer a second conference room that was actually in a basement and that was successful. And then it came time where you know we were standing in front of the real estate people saying, you know, we really need another conference room and they said, well, you know, how about we just open up a whole bay for you. This looks like it's not going to go away. We don't want you to keep taking over conference rooms. We'll just open up a bay and put in Uh, open seating. And in fact, we knocked down cube seating that I think initially had about seating enough for, I think it was about 180 people. And we doubled the amount of seating capacity in that bay. And it still looked open and airy and, you know, Pat's walked through it. Uh, There's a huge center aisle that, you know, makes it look very spacious.
1: For candidates coming through, that had to be very attractive. If they're coming to interview with Allstate and they see all of this innovation going on, the team's working collaboratively, is that something that you would show to prospective hires?
2: Yes. And we would. that's one of the reasons we would prefer to do these pairing interviews I talked about uh, actually in real time, on-site. So we did do some remotely, but we always wanted to make sure the candidate got to see their work environment and see what it would be like. You know, I do realize that there's still a uh, group of people who consider work at home to be a good alternative, and I think it makes sense in some cases. Uh, But when you're trying to put together a small team that's going to be highly collaborative, iterate through a number of things, when you're doing paired programming, you know, that kind of work, and you're doing rotation of the code every other day, you really want to make sure that the people
0: are, are situated together.
1: Which goes back to your point about empathy.
0: Yeah. As you w- went through this evolution of how to find the right team members, were there any like unintended lessons that you learned, like things that you, you learned from that you never thought to even look at? I think we learned quite a bit of things. So we
2: learned, for example, to be really upfront with candidates about you know, their, their core working hours. So the initial expectation was that you would be working from 8 till 5. You would have a one-hour lunch in there. And uh, the facility is such that you don't take a formal break, but there's ping-pong tables and other things so that when you're running a build and things like that, you can get up and decompress. But the idea of this is the work environment, this is where you're expected to be. We did modify the core hours to be somewhere between 10 and 3 Uh, But it was important because one of the things we did with these development teams is we took away meeting rooms, we took away email, and we took away the desk phones. Now, they can still have a personal cell phone, but we took away the desk phones. So what we're doing is taking away the distractions that you normally have in a daily environment from a software development standpoint, letting these teams concentrate on producing the code, getting that product shipped and out into the customer or agent's hands.
0: Well, and I think that touches on another, one of the more impressive lessons that you've shared with us in the past is, you know, this pair programming notion. I think a lot of people, and historically myself, when I considered it, you look at it and go, so one guy's not being utilized, right? There's one person who's sitting, I don't want to say stagnant, but, you know, not
2: that's always a question. Why, why am I paying for twice as many programmers as I think I should have? <laughs> so the
0: first one's not good enough to do it on their own? But I love the math that you've got. Yeah. Out
2: so of one of the things we found was that as you do paired development, one of the advantages you get is extremely tight code that's very, very good quality. So what it does is it reduces the need on the back end to spend enormous numbers of hours doing quality control or quality assurance testing. Now, you still do testing, but those are now automated tests. Those are things that really uh, can can run much faster through the process. And what you see is that the two developers will actually feed off each other. One will, uh, as I said, one will drive for about an hour uh, while the other one does active participation. Uh, they can switch then, and then the other one will drive. And the first one will do the active participation, where they comment. You know, It keeps them from going down a rat hole sometimes. It keeps the uh, code pretty tight. I've seen situations where uh, a pair even, for example, will start, develop some code, and then the next day, it will rotate to a different pair. And they will take that code and optimize it a bit more. And then it will rotate to a third group and then back to the original. Pair and they'll see all the changes that were made to the code, just in terms of optimization. So that it's a learning experience as well, um, and it's more egalitarian. It's not a my code you can't touch it. You know, it's you know my piece of artwork. It's more of a we're trying to make this the best we can do. Mm-hmm.
0: As a reformed developer, I can say yeah that that concept of my beautiful piece of art and defend it. The amount of conversation that involved concatenation of strings that just should not have ever existed in humanity okay. are overwhelming. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> with the, the tabs versus spaces kind of religious wars that go on, there,
2: there's there's still some religious wars. But yeah. and that's what's nice about having a team lead. So you have a lead who you can take the inf- the, the issues to, and uh, you make a decision one way or the other. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the best decision. It's just the agreed upon decision, and this is where we're going to move forward with it. Um, One of the other things I personally noticed, as long as you're going to talk about your programming experience, uh, I learned to program in a completely different way. Uh, When I was in school, we were had daytime lectures and we were given problems to solve, so I became a night coder. I would always need to take a problem, think about it, internalize it, and then I would do my best coding starting at and 30 at night into midnight, 1 o'clock, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, That is not going to work in a paired programming environment. (laughs) You really need to have a mentality that says, I don't need the perfect answer. I just need to start. And you have the trust of the rest of the team that you've started down this path, and they will help either uh,
0: correct or optimize or enhance what you've done. Even when I think about, like, when I was in school and coming out and getting a degree in computer science, Programming was a very lonely, very isolated activity. So from your perspective, is that created different challenges now where you're taking people who maybe were good at in isolation now they've got to work in a pair? And I understand the pair stuff that you talked about, but there's a bigger focus of, you know, these pairs don't exist on their own either, right? It's a team of six to eight. And is that correct? Four would be the minimum okay. that we like to have.
2: Uh, and they can probably go as high as 12 developers. Um, We don't like to do less than four because you get two people together. We refer to that as being married Uh, because what happens is one tends to dominate the other. Uh, And we don't want that. We want a situation where everybody's learning, everybody's seeing everything that's going on. And uh, even if you're a novice at something, uh, you bring value by questioning what's going on. Okay. Um, Let's see. You know, there were a number of things that we've learned over time. Um, the the people who are night owls, for example, don't tend to want to do pair programming. They want to work at night at home, and so we look for different situations for them. Uh, people who uh, are very quiet, uh, and I don't mean introverted. I'm just mean quiet. Uh, they need to be brought out of that way of thinking. It's not about you know Patrick's the senior programmer and I'm the junior person, and I will always defer. Uh, Interestingly enough, I have heard that the U.S. Air Force is now working in XP in some of the things that they're doing from a logistics standpoint. And I think they've got some nice YouTube articles out there. So if you just do USAF and then XP, you'll find out that they're really doing a lot of the things around not just the way they develop code, but even doing uh, the ceremonies around it where they'll do stand-up meetings and everybody talks to each other by first name, you know, which, wow. <laughs> okay, Patrick is like, wow. <laughs>
0: right. Outside um, of special forces, that's generally not the way it that's works. That's not the way it
2: works. And um, and they'll do retrospectives and talk about what worked and didn't work. So it's not as, not as much of a command and control environment for what they're doing.
0: Yeah. And to that point, uh, there's a group that Shelly and I participate in and Uh, one of the gentlemen that was creating uh, awareness for transitioning military into civilian professional life. There was a general on one of the trips, and none of the military folks could refer to him as anything less than general. Even though he retired and kept asking them to do so, uh, they really couldn't bring themselves to say anything but general.
1: Yeah, they couldn't do it.
0: And I don't want to make you think that the entire Air Force is now gone
2: collegiate, on it, because might, I don't think it has. But this IT group that is doing a lot of the work around uh, some of the logistics that they have to do around fuel and some of the other things uh, really has been very, very aggressive at being able to uh, develop new ways of software management
0: systems for the Air Force. Well, and I think your point is very valid that Regardless of whether it's the military or old school, large organizations, a lot of those relationships are codified and they're limiting, right? Isn't that part of like the the concern is that I am the senior architect and whatever I say goes. And there's plenty of scenarios where we've engaged with organizations and we've seen that the barrier is that everybody knows that the senior architect is wrong, but nobody's going to go tell them. So I guess that's that egalitarian or meritocracy Approach of you no, know, everybody's got good information. So, is that a culture that always existed at Allstate, or is that something that you think you? My personal opinion is it's always existed at Allstate. I
2: think where people don't understand it is two things. One is you do have to be respectful when you bring up a, a situation mm-hmm. that, that you don't agree with. Okay, you can't just start down a a road where you're going to be berating or belittling something. You want to really. Try and start, uh, take the high road, if you will. Um, the second thing that people don't understand is sometimes decisions are made. And I think this is interesting about the all-state culture. Decisions are made uh, due to things that you may not be aware of, okay? So different levels of executives and uh, people know different things and have are, are more in tune to uh, higher-level strategies that may make a suggestion that you have, not quite the thing we're going to do at the moment or not the thing we might do at all because, you know, we've got a strategy that says we're going to put all this work on the side, you know, and you're not privy to that piece of information. So that's that's what I've seen most of the time. Uh, I've seen very little uh, personality conflict in terms of, you know, just I, I'm, you know, in charge and you're all going to listen. Yeah. Um, I, I think we've always had a culture that said, you know, I'm I'm here to lead, but I'm expecting you guys to lead from your seats as well. And when we're headed down and something we we shouldn't be going down, we expect you to speak up.
1: Sounds like a very healthy culture.
2: I I think for the most part it has been, yeah. I I think there are people who, for whatever reason, didn't participate in that, Uh, either fear um, or um, fear of change. I, I think probably it isn't fear of being fear of retribution as much. I think that gets used as a excuse. I think it's more of a people have a personal fear of change. So what if I say this and we do it? You know, way, <laughs> now I'm on the hook and I got to come up with other ideas or other, you know, yeah. other, you know, explanations to go with this, you know. So that's one aspect of it. Um, the, the other one is really kind of the, the inability to tie your ideas to value. So you can have a lot of great ideas, but if you can't get a metric that ties it to the value of that service or offering that you have, um, it becomes dubious as to do you really invest in it.
1: So speaking of new ideas, how did you prioritize those when they came into the lab? So we had a, as
2: I said, we had a platform. Um, You could start with an Excel spreadsheet if you needed to, but we bought a tool uh, that allows people to submit their ideas either as kind of a suggestion box or what we preferred to do was go out to a department and run innovation challenges where you know somebody would say, you know, for the call center group, we're looking for all kinds of ideas that you have. Let's incorporate them in. Uh, and we would take them all in and we had a scheme of basically prioritizing them. And it was proprietary to us. Uh, and I don't know even if I told you that it would be useful uh, for somebody else. But it, the important thing is to figure out a scheme where you can say, these are the things I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that uh, saves at least this much money or uh, in, creates this much revenue. Or I'm looking for things that uh, improve headcount utilization. You know, what, what are those things you're looking for? And then tie those metrics back so that you can prioritize the idea. So you get an idea that uh, somebody says, you know, we'd like to be able to call, you know, in the call center example, we'd like to be able to call the customer back as an option rather than having them wait for us. You know, so now you take that against your other metrics of, does that make us more efficient? Does that make revenue? Does it save cost? And the answer is two of those three are true. Now that makes it higher in the priority scale. And we used a scale of one to 10.
0: So we would weigh them as well.
1: Interesting.
2: That
0: is very interesting. So the concept of product managers, right? So Mm -hmm. when did that get introduced?
2: That came about as part of our overall IT transformation. uh, And that's really where it started to bleed into business transformation as well. So we started out with these XP teams, and we needed somebody to uh, be on-site as a product manager. Now, two things are important to know here. One is it's a mindset change for a company like Allstate to move from project-based work to product-based work, projects start and end, you know, and the team disperses. Products go through a product life cycle, where you know they'll start off as kind of the S-curve example in innovation. You'll start off; you don't exactly know what the product should do. You do a few features, you test them out, you iterate, test and learn on that. Um, and then add more and more features over time. So we needed somebody to act as the product manager, and that was usually somebody out of our line of business groups that was designated as a product manager. Um, For those services that I would call IT technology services, so think of it as SOA or API-type services that you want to do, sometimes the product manager would come out of the IT group. Okay. But the idea was that the product manager really would, uh, on these XP teams, would actually do everything from uh, designing what the roadmap would be for the product, doing the story input, uh, because there isn't a scrum master in XP. That's the product manager doing the inputting for the stories and doing the initial testing and acceptance of the released code as well. So, it's a big deal to change from project mindset where you're rated on how fast, on time, and how much money you spent to whether the features you deliver are generating value. And I use that word value rather than revenue or some of the other words you might think of. So, value being defined as whatever it is, whatever that outcome is, whatever that metric is. It could be uh, a customer based metric around, you know, like ease, satisfaction, ease level. Yeah, satisfaction level. Gotcha. Uh, you know, revenue is a nice one. Don't get me wrong. Right. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, there are times you want to create frictionless uh, efforts for the customer as well. Um, let me give you an example of Please. something we did early. Um, we, as part of Allstate, we have some subsidiaries and one of them is our Allstate roadside services group. So a motor club. The way it normally would work is if your car breaks down, you call the motor club. The motor club will call center will then call a tow truck dispatcher to dispatch a tow truck uh, to you to do whatever you need. In a number of cases, you don't necessarily need a tow truck. So if you have a flat tire or you need a battery jump or you ran out of gas, those are all situations where you don't need the truck to tow you somewhere. Um, so what we did was we created a app that looks very much like an Uber or Lyft type app where you can now say, you know, I've, I need, uh, roadside assistance and you tell them what you need. And we have around the country, we have Allstate rescuers who are at the other end of that app and can bring you the gasoline, do a tire change or, uh, a battery jump, and a couple of other things for you. So, so, Roman,
1: if I had that app, I, I could have used it this morning when I got <laughs> stuck in my alley in the snow. <laughs> well,
2: again, that stuck in the alley because of the snow is probably a tow or a pull. Okay, <laughs> But if you run out of gas or you get into a situation where, um, you know, it's, it doesn't really require the tow truck part of it, uh, those rescuers are there. But you can still use the app to get a tow truck as well. Uh, The nice thing is you can see where the rescuer or tow truck is in relation to you. So how close are they? Are they coming towards you? Or did they stop for coffee? (laughs) Things like that. (laughs) Uh, So we were one of the first to release that. And a number of other motor clubs have now released that as a technology that you can use. But again, it's it's a metric around how many people are using it. Uh, We also have metrics around how many rescuers we have. Because we're actually, one of the things our CEO talks about is the way the economy is changing uh, and the way the technologies are changing. Uh, So we all know about automated vehicles and uh, uh, autonomous cars as coming, but the sharing economy is changing things as well. So this idea of allowing people who just want to become an all-state rescuer uh, to get you gas or whatever, and you're certified and you're... Pre-qualified, so we know who you are. Things like that. It's it's a way of helping people uh, get jobs in the economy that we have today. Um, when we get to autonomous vehicles, we're going to look at the fact that maybe uh, the fact that you have a car sitting around ninety plus percent of the time parked isn't the most efficient use of a car. Uh, even Ford Motor Company now talks about themselves as a transportation company, not mm-hmm. a auto manufacturer. So. Uh, one of the things Allstate will introduce, I believe, later this year, is a
0: uh, car sharing company. Hmm. Now, did that spin out of like I know uh, some of the other ones you mentioned, the roadside service, and there's a couple other startups that have spun out of that. Uh, is that is that going? Well, be this is also a startup. Yeah. Is it going to be its own entity? It will
2: be its own entity. Very cool. So let, let me just set the stage for your listeners a little bit. So Allstate is a large personal property and casualty company. That is the major bread and butter for the company, which is the auto, home, boat type ins- RV insurance. Okay, We also have a life company so uh, and retirement company. We also have a number of other smaller subsidiaries. Uh, some of them handle insurance uh, under other brand names. You've heard of e You may not have heard of another one called Encompass. Those are also Allstate state insurance companies. Um, we also have uh, roadside services, which I mentioned earlier, and we have a telematics group called ARITY. So ARIDI started originally as part of the Allstate Property and Casualty Group with the notion of being able to capture uh, vehicle driving information and using it to rate uh, the the driver, if you will. Uh, and I know that sounds a little spooky right off the get-go, right? <laughs> uh, but the idea is it's a little bit different than Progressive's model. In our model, you, you originally put a dongle into the car, and we would charge you a rate regardless. This is your rate. And depending on if you drove better, we would give you discounts. Uh, Progressive's model is to put the dongle in, figure out how you drive, and then rate you based on how you drive. Ours was, this is your rate. If you drive better, we will discount you uh, every so many months. And the idea is to incent you to drive better. Now, driving better, frankly, is not what you might think it is. It's things like, please drive under 80 miles an hour. It's things like, maybe you shouldn't be making a a hard braking, you know, if you hard brake a lot. Because sooner or later, you're going to have a rear ender. maybe you shouldn't be making that left turn across a four-lane undivided highway kind of thing, you know. Uh, So those kinds of suggestions are things that we give you as part of the DriveWise program. That's what it was called. Eventually, um, the collection of that data and the platform that was built became Arity. And Arity can take that platform and some of the data and use it for uh, other things, creating uh, models, safety models for companies that are other insurance companies. They can use it for other purposes. So think about maybe uh, having a app that is monitoring the self, the driving or cell phone app that's monitoring the driving of a Uber or Lyft driver. So today the customer does rate them, okay? But is it a fair rating or not? You, know, you know, or are they giving him, you know, five stars when really this guy drives around like a maniac, you know, and, it's, you know, is going to cause a problem for the company. Um, so that's the kinds of things you can consider doing with that kind of driving data.
1: So, Roman, I'm curious, any ideas that came through that you and the team thought this is not going to work, that, you know, it's too far-fetched and maybe it became a success story?
2: Interestingly enough, I, we never really say this is not going to work. Uh, what we do is we try it to see what, how far we can push it. So we are, uh, again, Allstate is on its probably third iteration of virtual reality. Uh, we, we're looking for different ways to leverage virtual reality in either the claims process or other uh, training aspects, things like that. Uh, and we every time we do a... Tested that we find out something new. The technology's been updated. The goggles are lighter. They're you know the software is getting easier to work with. Things like that. Uh, but we put that away as a learned lesson. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, All State has a Alexa skill. Uh, the Alexa skill for All State is probably not highly used, but there was a lot of learning that went into working with uh, AWS and working with Amazon to develop that Alexa skill around natural language processing. That when it came time to use natural language processing in the call center, there were people who already had that basis to start talking about how do we do uh, conversational uh, artificial intelligence better, you know, that kind
0: of stuff. Do we do it with the customer? Do we do it with the call center agent? You know, that kind of stuff. So that's interesting. I never really thought about Alexa as, you know, first-line customer support. Based upon what you've seen and some of the lessons learned, do you see that as being a potentially viable solution for that? Well, for for some reason, which I don't
2: understand <laughs> still, uh, devices like Alexa and Google Home and all, all these little smart speakers... You know, considering I'm carrying a cell phone that can do the same thing, I don't know <laughs> why people like the smart speaker, other than maybe they they don't want to grab the phone or whatever, and they can just shout out. Um, but they are growing in popularity. Uh, CES is just got a number of other vendors that are in there in that space as well. Apple has announced their entry. Uh, Sony, uh, Samsung. I'm sorry. Yeah, Samsung has an entry now. Mm -hmm. They've put in. uh, Sooner or later, you'll be speaking to your TV uh, and giving it your opinion on what you're watching. Uh, It's going to be funny when you know because it used to be you had your remote and whoever had the remote had control. Yeah. So now when you're going to do voice control, you know, like you and your wife
0: are going to shout it out. (laughs) Well, I think we all know who's going to win in that scenario. (laughs) I actually have a Fire TV. Right, so you talk to the remote control, and it can, it can actually. Right, but you still have the remote in you your still hand. Have the remote, yeah, and you got to push, push a button still. Right. Yeah, but I do think it, it's an interesting scenario that why is it that people are bringing these little devices in that I think we all universally accept are listening to us at all times, right?
2: I I don't think as many people realize that they're listening all the time as should. Oh, okay. Uh, I I. Amazed at how many people I talk to who are not necessarily in IT, who just, you know, say, you know, it's not listening, you know,
0: it's not, doesn't know what I'm saying. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I have a good friend who realized how bad it was when he had wired up quite a bit, of a, a, a pretty good rig in his home, and his relatives from China came to visit and asked him a question in Chinese, and Alexa responded in Chinese to him. Great. And that's when he realized the depth of, you know, what's really on the other end of that. And, and they actually demoed it at CE. So I've been watching a lot of the
2: CES stuff coming out uh, as part of my role with the other group. But um, they demoed a Google has now a language translator feature. So you can put a little Google device, think of it as on a hotel lobby uh, desk. And so the Receptionist can talk to you in English and the visitor can talk in whatever language they want and it does the translation real time for
0: you. Well, that reminds me of the last Starfighter, if you remember that movie from the eighties. He plays video games and then because he does so well in a video game, the aliens come and grab him to,
2: to Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Starfighter. Okay. So when he gets there, they actually give him a device to put in his ear that will do all the translations. So apparently
2: not far off. Not no. far off. So yeah.
0: it was cool in the 80s. Yeah.
2: I think you had asked me initially, um, do I think that science fiction writers, you know, do they just dream up these ideas and then technology people do them? Right. Or is it vice versa? And I think the answer is both. I think in some cases where they try to get far enough out, uh, the the uh, it's just pure imagination and the technology people follow. But sometimes... Sci-fi writers will take a good look at what's uh, out there now that people are playing with, whether it be quantum computing or mm. um, there's a. Um, if you're into sci-fi, there's on YouTube. There's a channel called Dust D U S T, and they do a number of short sci-fi films. Usually they're 15 minutes or less, trying to show you what the future could look like.
0: So you mentioned also uh, the future watchword. Is esports so current? It,
2: the current version of plastics, right? Uh, <laughs> that you should
0: invest in is esports or
2: cyber sports. So, tell us your perspective on esports. Well, there's two hot things in the market now. One is uh, marijuana or cannabis, uh, and the other one, which I like better, <laughs> is cyber sports. Uh, the reason I like cyber better is because there's a whole range of places that you can enter that space, uh, esports being one of them. Uh, and there are large companies investing in it, like CBS Interactive is doing a lot of work around that, uh, Disney, et cetera, down to smaller uh, people who are starting up little venues where you can bring the kids in to have a uh, safe, controlled environment where they can play games with each other and compete, if you will. And I, I think, you know, down the road, you will see things like, uh, I mean, you see it today, things like NFL Madden uh, group going in there and actually creating their own teams and competing with each other. Um, so I, I think that's got a lot of different potential, and it's really the level of imagination that people are bringing to it is just fantastic.
0: Hmm. I have seen it touch into the traditional sports environment in, in some online blogs and things like that where they have announcements about Mm -hmm. things. Um, As a parent, obviously, my concern is I want my kids outside not playing Fortnite all day.
2: Uh, I can tell you I can see my grandkids. Uh, Some of them really take to it, and some of them do not. Mm. Um, It's Some things I've noticed is that the group gaming... Is really, really catching on. So it's not about sitting there, zoning out, playing a game uh, by yourself as much as I'm playing and I'm on a headset and I'm talking to three of my friends who are also part of the group. Okay. Um, the other thing I'm seeing is the game manufacturers are becoming what, a little bit more mature and they're going beyond, although there's still all this first-person shooter and and violent stuff, but there are games that are coming out that are starting to provide historical context for things. So um, I think it's called red dead two just came out and you get to be a, a outlaw or pioneer and you play a role. And it's historically pretty accurate around a lot of things that are going on in that time period. So you see everything from the way the town is set up to uh, women's suffrage going on to other things that are going on at that time period, so it's in, in a way it's kind of subliminally teaching you about what was going on at that time. Um, I will bring up that the NHL is testing uh, electronics in, in or different capabilities and being able to follow the puck, because what they hear often from uh, people who go to games. Is that if you're physically in the game, you really like it because it's fast paced. It's you, you get to see a lot of what's going on, and it, it's probably a lot more exciting than watching it on TV. So they're looking for ways to uh, track the puck, make it a better experience from a video perspective for uh, people who are watching the game remotely. It's interesting. I know they tried to do that in the, years ago. They yeah, did it with a little the big streak. red thing, yeah, yeah. But now they're they're actually the puck is created with these chips inside of it mm. that allow them to be tracked. And the data is collected at like 200 times a second or some number like that. And what you're seeing is not the, the streak, if you will, but the actual statistics are going back to where is the puck most of the time in what zone, who's got control of it, you know, what are they doing with it when they have control of it. Uh, how do they set up a play where they actually scored on that play? They can backtrack it to show the the whole sequence of who was where.
1: Aren't they also putting technology in the jerseys of, you know, football players and yes. other athletes to yeah, track and, all of and,
2: yeah? and that's where the e-wearables starts to come in as well. And I think that's a good so even uh they started with the idea of concussions and making sure they could monitor, you know, how hard the hit was in the helmet, but I think they're gonna go way beyond that. You're gonna, you're gonna see Madden-style planning of plays going on real time mm-hmm. in front of you. So I, I expect football games and other kinds of venues to actually say, you know, we have three ways of setting up this play. Vote on it, you know, kind of stuff. Or what oh, would wow. you do, you know, and see what the coach does, and then you can ream the coach for
0: not doing it the right way, <laughs> not calling it <laughs> right. I do that anyways. I mean, I. But now you'll. You'll have not um, anymore because now we got a good coach. It's a different world,
2: right? But I mean, games like you know Madden, 2K, and NBA 2K. Those games all let you pick your players, create your own teams, Mm -hmm. which was part of the early, early esports kind of betting venues. uh, To now being able to go through a whole season with them, Uh, some you know random things occur, like some players get hurt you go through this whole thing as a
0: rookie or as a, and you progress through that stage. I think it's interesting like where we started with the conversation about collaboration, mm-hmm. right? The remote collaboration, how I think we all agree being near each other is still an important aspect. Obviously some of that has changed. I think when I had very hard rules about everybody's got to be here. Mm-hmm. The technology's definitely changed that, right? The video capabilities, the audio capabilities I, I, what do you foresee in the future, do you think? Well, I know, I know people are pinning their hopes on 5G as
2: being the technology that's going to get rid of a lot of the lag, or um, I'm using the technical term lag. <laughs> I, I know my network buddies will hate me when I say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a lot of the uh, dropping and lagging that you get, uh, because you know people still get those even in, in the games they play. The, you know, they can see their character not moving. Even though they're pushing the button, and it's very frustrating. So things are getting better um, as the technology improves. Um, the network is always the the Achilles heel mm-hmm. uh, for that. So you really have to think about where you're putting people um, in terms of you know what kind of bandwidth you can get in that location, things like that. So you know, I know a lot of people are pinning hopes on five G. I think it's a great technology. I've seen it in action.
0: So I guess that's one question I have. It's like. When you look at, like, the 5G revolution and, you know, do we need that line to Comcast in the future, right, where it's like I, I need a, a – some kind of modem in my home to give me – And I, I think it depends on your location. Yeah.
2: It, re- it really depends on – that's my problem is where I'm located.
0: Okay. If I moved off the farm and moved downtown, it would be fine. Gotcha. <laughs> I, gotcha. I would have a lot more options. Interesting. So talking about, like, what you're doing now I think is very interesting. I guess – I'd like to know now that you're out into other environments a little bit more. What do you think the state of innovation in a lot of these organizations that you're seeing? You know, are they technically ready for rebuilding themselves? You know, taking on the new challenges. I, I think what we see is uh, two things
2: happening. One is that leaders of those companies know that they need to innovate to survive. You only need to look at what's going on. Uh, You know, just watch a couple of Bloomberg, you know, things on on daily uh, TV, and you you can see that innovation is driving the American economy forward. Um, What they're struggling with is, now, what do I do about that? Um, I think unless you have a vision, and, uh, you know, again, I'll say Tom Wilson, who's the CEO of Allstate, has a pretty concrete vision of what he'd like to do to move the company forward into the new autonomous driving age, into shared economy, into how do we prosper as uh, Americans. So he's got a vision around that. And that's what he's trying to move the company towards. Other companies, I I don't think, have been able to create that vision or create a solid vision. So they know they need to innovate, but they say, I don't know how to get there. And part of the reason they don't know how to get there is they don't have a vision or strategy that, that can be implemented. So then you run off and you start creating agile teams and doing lots of things, but you run into friction either uh, from other groups that don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, or uh, you know your customers get angry with you because you're not supporting the current set of products and you're off working on something you shouldn't be. Um, there's a lot of conversation, for example, on what happened with GE. You know, I, um, you can go ahead and I think that's going to be the 2019 uh, business school reviews on, you know, how, how are they trying to change and why didn't certain
0: things work out as, as they tried to change the whole fast works, you know, they tried to adopt the, yeah. the, the question I wonder is, was it the mistake or was it just the inevitable? This is part of like, you know, the butterfly process and they're just kind of at the chrysalis stage. It's not that it's, Well, and again, I think it's two things. One
2: is you don't have your vision set in concrete, and then the other one is you take your eye off the ball of what you're doing today. Hmm. You still, I mean, you know, Allstate is a property and casualty business. That is what we have to do when a bad storm comes through or something happens, people are expecting us to be able to pay those claims, Mm -hmm. okay? If that starts to go bad or we start to mismanage our money or, you know, because we make money on investments... um, or you know any of the factors that we have that is our core business, then we can't do all those wonderful things that'll move us forward, uh, because it'll collapse out. The foundation will collapse out from under you. Oh. So and again, that's where I think we at Allstate, the idea of having these subsidiaries like Arity, uh Allstate Roadside Services, uh, the new car sharing group, and then by the way, there'll be a new product uh, that does digital protection. So protecting your digital life, not just your home and auto. Um, so those are all things that are poised for moving forward, okay, and you need to do those and invest in those and think of it as nurturing part of your garden, if you will, okay, but if you're, you know, if the rest of everything else that keeps it going is bad, you're not going to
0: be able to continue that path. Well, Roman, on behalf of Shelly and I, I, just want to say thank you for coming in today. Really appreciate you sharing your experience and your knowledge uh, really looking forward to what's going to happen next for you in your career. Well, thank you to both you and Shelly for having me. I also wanted to thank our listeners for spending the time to join us. I uh, really appreciate everybody listening.
1: And you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com podcast, or find us at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.